0: This seems like a little good news we don't see very often. Of course, don't know if it'll stick around, but a U.S. federal judge has made what I guess you could consider a historic decision that U.S. Customs and Border Protection has to have a warrant to search your mobile device now at the border, which, if you didn't know, has been a thing basically since 9-11, that they could take your phone and download the contents when you're crossing the border without a warrant. And a judge has ruled
1: no more phone, laptop, any digital device, you oddly have no rights at national borders. And so this is a slight pushback on that, which is nice to see. At the same time, it is coming 20 years too late. And I think that this sort of jumped out at us because we are going to be traveling to El Salvador this year and we want to have a lightning wallet set up on our phones. And so we were kind of talking about how, gosh, you know, if you have a hot lightning wallet on your phone and you go across a national border, is that safe? You know, could Customs and Border Patrol drain my lightning wallet? And I think the answer is yes, probably. To be honest with you, even if they didn't take the funds,
0: I don't want to be in some sort of database that says this guy has cryptocurrency crossing the border and I don't want them to be able to suss out maybe my node URL by looking at the app. Not that they necessarily would today. I would imagine if they had a snapshot or an image of some kind, right, they I could at a future point when they just say, okay, yeah, this guy had cryptocurrency. We'll save the image aside. Technology improves. They could decompress that image five years down the road and get my note information. I mean, I'm just being extra paranoid, but it's something you have to consider when you're handing over a device with something as important as that information.
1: And I think there's the tinfoil hat approach, which is you have a separate phone for traveling. So we could definitely do that. Just bring a kind of disposable Android phone that's pre-configured with a couple communication apps, a VPN, and something connecting to your node. I mean, it doesn't really solve the node problem. But you could also theoretically store an encrypted image of your phone of a phone backup on your next cloud or something and then restore from that backup when you get to your destination. I mean, that sounds quite involved and there are things that could go wrong there. But as far as I know, there's not a way to have like a secret enclave on your phone where you can hide applications and data. Yeah. Do you
0: remember the old TrueCrypt application? I think that's what it was called. And you could have deniable, plausible deniability hidden encryption. You could, you could hide it in places on your drive that would look like regular files and You could just say, yeah, there's nothing on here. And they would have really no way to know. I I want something like that for my phone. That's what I want is I don't want to have to worry about getting to a hotel with bad Wi-Fi and then trying to do some sort of like six gig image recovery or download my apps and reconnect everything and then have to log into all my services like that just all sounds so clunky for something I shouldn't have to do in the first place. I would be really interested to know what the audience has done or what they've been thinking about, or if they even worry about this.
1: Slight digression. Do you know that Paul Leroux was involved in the creation of TrueCrypt? Are you familiar with that name? No, but you know me and names. Leroux is a South African tech entrepreneur who is also one of the most prolific cyber criminals in human history. He's also been suggested as a possible Satoshi Nakamoto candidate by people who don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) But he's a fascinating character if uh, you're interested in cyber criminals. He's literally like a criminal mastermind.
0: Interesting. That kind of maybe fills in some color as to how
1: the True Crypt Project just sort of came to an awkward end. And also, he's a story about how open source business models don't work because maybe he created the precursor to TrueCrypt like Veracrypt or something and then TrueCrypt employed him and he was resentful that he'd created this thing and someone else had made a company on top of it and he wasn't getting paid enough and then he turned to crime. This is the Bitcoin DadPod recorded on June 2nd, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I am here remotely, as always, with. Hello, everybody. It's Chris from the woods. Thanks for joining us. I can hear the sound of trees. It's lovely. <laughs> yeah, that's about all there is
0: out here trees. And then in the evening, after the sun sets, there's definitely critters out there.
1: I think city people are often surprised at how incredibly loud the night is in the countryside.
0: I saw some huge elk last night, just as the sun had set, just a little bit down from where we're parked at. Then, after, I don't know, maybe about. 45 minutes after that, I went out and there was some serious branches getting broken. Like, I don't know if it was a bear or what. It seemed like a big animal that just didn't care. So I just went back inside.
1: Today, we are going to enjoy some crypto schadenfreude, courtesy of Amy Castor, the crypto skeptic. We are going to review a research paper by the European Central Bank about how their are cbdc test is not a total bitcoin clone but it kind of is usdc circle the regulated dollar stablecoin, ditched all of their u.s treasury holdings over concerns that the u.s would default on their debt now that the u.s has come together on a treasury debt issuance plan, they'll probably be buying again. But it's kind of interesting to explore the phenomenon there. Tether, the offshore crypto euro dollar company, is investing some of its operating profits in Bitcoin. This could be interesting, might not be a big deal, but I thought it brings up some Interesting thoughts around how a company like Tether holds reserves. In energy, we have a interesting study that analyzes cryptocurrency mining's impact on power grids. This is the sort of data-driven analysis that should be part of the conversation. In Bitcoin Education, we have a BitMEX blog piece about the problem of low-value Lightning payments. It turns out that some of Lightning's security assumptions fail if the payment is too small. And then we have Bitcoin Optech 253. This Optech has a larger explanation of Burak's proposal for ARC a join pool style protocol, as well as a article about block space and bidding for block space in a tight market. And then we have some feedback and boosts and that's our show.
0: Let's start with this newsletter from Amy Castor. That name definitely rings a bell for me, dad, but fill me in. I know she's a crypto skeptic,
1: but that's as far as my recollection goes. Amy Castor and David Gerard I would say are the two prominent crypto journalists who hate crypto and I think that they're quite useful because if there's any sort of shenanigans or negative stuff happening they're very sensitive because they're like oh boy crypto is doing something bad and then they throw it into their newsletter and David Gerard wrote the book Attack of the 50 Foot Blockchain which admittedly I have not read honestly I haven't read it just because things David Gerard says in public don't seem very thoughtful, so I haven't really wanted to buy his book. It, yes. He's famous for yes. that sticker, Bitcoin. It can't be that stupid. You must have explained it wrong. I'm just I'm not sure what the criticism there is. So, you know, I I'm, I'm, haven't really investigated his. I think David may have attended
0: a Senate hearing because I remember the author of the attack at the 50 foot blockchain being one of the folks who was uh, testifying. His criticisms of Bitcoin were amateur, really, really basic like asserting the type of stuff like only 10 developers control Bitcoin and that if you influence 10 developers, you could change Bitcoin to go to proof of stake. You know how ridiculous that is. And I was just like, wow, this guy's this guy wrote a book about Bitcoin
1: and this is his take. (laughs) It's interesting because there are some journalists who work at Coindesk and they cover crypto and then they have in their disclaimer, this writer owns Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so we have this attempt to sort of have journalists cover Bitcoin and crypto and a little open about their bags. And, you know, that's an interesting model. Then you have people like David Gerard and Amy Castor, and it's almost like their critique is a little emotional and angry and disgusted. Then you have something kind of in between where you have people like the crypto critics who they try to be more thoughtful and there is a sense that they think that there is potential in this technology. But the critiques of Bitcoin and crypto, they always fail to critique legacy system they always take the legacy system as a given and then any negatives that come with a new technology those have to be dealt with before we talk about the positives so that's kind of my critique of the critique and then you just have people with very little integrity in my view like laura shin who covers crypto but gets advertising from DeFi wallets so it's like i'm not really sure you can be sufficiently critical of pump and dump protocols if they're advertising on your show
0: Yeah, that's a fun little conflict of interest that we see in the quote-unquote crypto press quite a bit. All right, so Amy Castor has this newsletter that's now also a blog post, and uh, to me, when I skim through it, it looks like kind of... Uh, dancing on the grave of some of the big brands in crypto that have collapsed in the last year?
1: Absolutely. But there is some good coverage here. So basically, the Celsius bankruptcy has a new proposed deal that seems a little bit better than their last one. But Amy observes that this deal is basically a number go up deal, as in let's get the crypto out of the Celsius burning bankruptcy estate hands and hope that the bull market raises the values and let's not liquidate it at the bottom of the bear market. I mean, that's kind of their plan. That's interesting because it it shows you how rough things can get when you give your assets to a scam custodian that then goes bankrupt and you're hoping to get pennies on the dollar back after the bankruptcy is resolved. So I think that's you know, that's good to know. Also, there's coverage of Digital Currency Group, which is the holding company that owns both Genesis and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And Digital Currency Group is bankrupt. They have done a bit of inside dealing where Genesis lent money to Digital Currency Group and digital currency group is supposed to make payments to genesis and they haven't done it so there's just a massive bankruptcy brewing there does it affect bitcoin not really because it's not like they can crack open the grayscale bitcoin trust and sell it off it seems like the fight around the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is likely to be trust holders are trying to petition for a new custodian to manage it because Digital Currency Group, which is really Barry Silbert's company, Barry Silbert, of course, being on the wrong side of the SegWit2x debate in the block size wars. And I think he actually put together the New York agreement, which is basically a list of all the companies that suck in Bitcoin saying, hey, let's raise the block size limit arbitrarily. And now he's blown himself up. So it all comes around, I guess.
0: So I'm looking at Amy Castor's best of hits here of all of the uh, crypto ridiculousness from the last year. And then she has a section here called more good news for Bitcoin, where she, I guess, is trying to take the piss out of Bitcoin. So this is her list of bad news because it's more good news is her being ironic. This is her list of bad news for Bitcoin. OK. Do Kwan's bail has been scrapped. Bitcoin doesn't care. Nope, got nothing to do with Bitcoin. Here's the number two thing that she thinks is bad for Bitcoin. Glassnode says hodling has never been more popular, 68.1%, which that's actually a low estimate, hasn't moved in the past year. She thinks that's a bad thing for some reason. Though I guess maybe she doesn't understand the monetization process of a asset in a market that's trying to figure out the price, but that's fine.
1: I, I think that's a given, given the title of the vlog. <laughs> and then she talks about how Shaquille O'Neal is
0: getting served a, in a class action lawsuit because of FTX. She talks about some Web3 gaming venture shutting down. She talks about Coinbase's new TV ad, and she talks about the price. Problems with cryptocurrency, some YouTube video that some YouTube idiot made. None of this, none of this is bad news for Bitcoin. None of this. Her entire post, all of it is great news for Bitcoin. I don't see how that isn't plain and obvious to somebody who's covering this industry for as long as they
1: have that things are kind of lining up for Bitcoin. I love it when people are right for the wrong reason. One interesting thing about the history of Bitcoin is how many Bitcoiners have been very confident about let's say, Austrian economic views of hard money. And I'm quite confident that that model of how monetary systems work is just wrong. But the price appreciation of Bitcoin and the seeming demand for an asset like it fits very well into this Austrian model. And so I look at that and I say, okay, maybe some things are are right here, but a lot of it's wrong. But it's interesting how you can be very wrong and Make decisions based on your wrong views and still, in the end, be right. So, what's going on here? So, I think that Amy is really interesting because I like her Web3. Critique and you know some of this regulatory coverage, but she's completely wrong about Bitcoin. So anyway, sorry. Aside, I just think it's epistemolo- epistemologically interesting.
0: They're almost aware bears, right? They're so close to seeing it, but because they have the lens of the existing system, they don't see it. And like, it's almost ironic here in this piece, which is really supposedly like a you know a top level takedown of crypto. When she gets to the Bitcoin section. The only thing in here related to Bitcoin is that it's more popular than ever to hodl right now, which is great for a scarce asset trying to monetize, right? That's actually great news. And it's the only thing in this entire thing that's Bitcoin related. And how do you not see that? It just seems like this massive blind spot. But I understand she's she's trying to measure everything while within the system. And I get it. I, I understand that. But it's just once, you know, it's and Jalad, his eyes wide open once you see it. It's just so clear that there's a blind spot here.
1: And one of the links in here that's pretty interesting is there is a very janky PDF media release from the International Organization of Securities Commissions. There's kind of a high-level description, which is they essentially want the G7 to come together on crypto regulation that essentially closes loopholes for regulatory arbitrage. And this is exactly what we thought would be happening. It's also, in my view... A nice then you, they fight you flag that suggests that this Bitcoin thing that people mistake for cryptocurrency is going strong and continuing to kind of terrify legacy regulators. It's kind of a bullish signal in my view
0: because they seem to be taking note. So therefore, <laughs> that's a bullish signal. Well, yeah, because I mean it, you can't ignore it. That is a good signal. And here in the states, they're definitely in the they fight you stage for crypto. I still we're now a year into this plus of them really just swinging the regulatory acts at different projects, going after these uh, high profile cases like Celsius and Do Kwan and, Where you know, the like the SBF case, probably gonna take a decade to play out, and yet nothing really seems to indicate they're going after Bitcoin. They have gone after some of the fiat on ramps, that's to be sure. But that's mostly just an attack against crypto in general. I don't
1: think they're singling out Bitcoin. My sense is that crypto is kind of like the soft underbelly of digital currencies, and that's what gets attacked first because it's low-hanging fruit. Going after Bitcoin requires, in my view, big rejiggerings, at least in the United States, of things around freedom of speech and the freedom to use electricity for what you want to use it for. And that's legally complex. And there are a lot of venues to challenge those rules, whereas Web3 and Mm. DeFi and NFTs, Mm -hmm. these are pretty easy to squash. They fall really nicely inside existing securities regulation in terms of going after them. So I think that's what's going to be attacked first.
0: All right. That's what they have the machinery already set up to go after. That's what they have the personnel trained to do already. And that's what they have the laws on the books to execute on. So that is, that's what makes it low-hanging fruit. It's worth considering that if the federal government felt they couldn't properly attack and shut down Bitcoin after going after Ross and the Silk Road, even though they continue to prosecute cases linked. the Silk Road, but they haven't seemed to try to engineer some sort of political attack on Bitcoin or a technological attack on Bitcoin, and that's been going on for a decade. And I think maybe that's one of our signals as well, is that they've analyzed the beast and they've realized, unless we break TCP IP, there's really no way to stop this thing.
1: They're not going to come out and say that. You could try to do more active attacks on Bitcoin, but you'd end up having to create a um, internet control system like the Great Firewall in China. It's almost like you can't kill Bitcoin without also killing free speech on the Internet as well. And the U.S. isn't quite there politically to do that. So that's an attack that is just not feasible at this moment, I think.
0: It would require a significant stranglehold over the protocols of the Internet. You would have to really, because Bitcoiners are also clever enough to try to hide the traffic, maybe put it over Tor. I do all of my communication with my node over tail scale. So like, <laughs> good luck trying to stop that. So they would have to really alter the protocols, I would think, at a pretty fundamental level. They would probably have to start using something other than TCP IP on the carrier networks.
1: What you might end up doing is basically moving to a proxy model. So actually, citizens are not allowed to access the internet. You'd have to connect to the government proxy via your ISP, and then that proxy right. would do all of the filtering and surveillance. And the thing is, not even China has done that. China doesn't, I don't believe, uses a proxy model. They're just doing a couple different things, including um, DNS blacklisting, and then they do this sort of deep packet analysis to try and find the pattern of VPNs to attack VPNs. And that's actually really, really costly economically because there are many legitimate use cases to use VPNs for companies. And that is not something you can do in China. And as a result, they just sort of have bad data protection and data security everywhere.
0: Yeah. And Bitcoin mining is spinning back up in China. Actually, Bitcoin activity is resuming over in China. Again, I was just reading. So even after all of that, after passing laws and having what is sort of the cliché The kind of go-to example for online censorship and online control, even being that nation state, Bitcoin activity is booming again over there. It just, I think, is a quintessential example of you can't shut it down without going fully crazy on the internet. You know, the other cryptocurrencies are not really the same. Like If you shut down a foundation behind Solana, Solana's done tomorrow. If Vitalik, God forbid, were to get in a car accident, Ethereum's price would probably drop more than 50% tomorrow if the Consensus Foundation were to go away and stop paying developers full-time wages from VC money and pre-mined coins to develop for Ethereum, the Ethereum chain would begin to stagnate immediately, right? There's all of these central points of failure that are not at the network level, right? Bitcoin's only point of failure is at the network level. And that is essentially a state attack on free speech and TCP IP. It's a totally different attack vector.
1: The other thing that I think is really interesting is that you can observe the power of the ideas that make up Bitcoin in various responses to it. And so, again, shout out to No BS Bitcoin for this paper from the ECB about their digital euro prototype. It's a, really a fascinating paper. It's about this program called Next, and the E is a euro. And their kind of system was three-layered. They have this settlement engine, and the settlement engine is, like in the Bitcoin model, would be the Bitcoin blockchain and Bitcoin consensus, but they don't need consensus because it's a centralized system. So the consensus is just whatever the ECB says is consensus. So it's kind of simpler in that model. But what's interesting is they actually use a unspent transaction output model like Bitcoin. So in their next system, when you make payments, It's like Bitcoin, where you have these chunks of digital euro that are of various sizes, and then you spend them together into a new output. It's very different than the Ethereum model, where... You have Ethereum accounts and you debit and credit this Ethereum account. And I think that's kind of interesting because they've definitely gone with the tried and tested, the old technology on this one, as opposed to the account-based. But I was a bit surprised because I honestly thought they would go account-based since that seems to tie to identity a lot better. This is just more evidence that Bitcoin and digital currencies is this incredibly powerful idea that now... Every institution involved in money kind of wants to be a part of. Even the ECB, who questioned the legitimacy of any cryptocurrencies just a year or two ago, and now they're building a digital euro based on Bitcoin.
0: Although it seems like
1: it's maybe years off in totality. This is definitely just a test, so I don't think they're going to move fast on this. But the argument for using the UTXO transaction format is just because it's very extensible with a UTXO model, you can send UTXOs into different types of transactions. Like in Bitcoin, that's first we had pay to pubkey, then we had pay to script hash, then we had wrapped segwit, then we had native segwit, now we have taproot. These are just different types of transactions that you can put UTXOs into. And so UTXOs are kind of great for future-proofing your digital currency System, because when you want to add more functionality, you just create a new transaction type. You don't have to like modify what a UTXO is, if that makes sense.
0: This is, again, the almost aware bear. The more I read this, I think, why don't you just use Bitcoin then? (laughs) Look at this. This That's basically a sales brochure on why the UTXO model is fantastic. (laughs) It's
1: what this is. It's amazing because it's like you guys are doing marketing for Bitcoin. That's, a you know, that's great. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Creating UTXOs on the fly during end-user funding will lead to a very high number of issuance and redemption transactions. Huh. So, how does this end up long-term, do you think, dad? Do you think we have hundreds of CBDCs, just hundreds of them out there? Does the eurozone eventually consolidate onto one? Because if this is years out and you have individual members of the eurozone that are already talking about creating their own CBDCs, some of them are further ahead, how how are they going to do all of this? How are they going to coalesce? all of these individual ship coins they're all making.
1: To be honest, I think that it doesn't work because if we look at China, which is arguably one of the most powerful governments internally, as in the Chinese government has a huge amount of power over the lives of their citizens and their citizens don't get to complain. China was unable to or has been unable to force citizens to use their CBDC pilot currency. It seems that it's not very useful and people don't like it. And even Even when they're in an open air prison, which is my take on mainland China, you can't really force them to do it very easily. I believe that these Eurozone and other international central bank digital currency projects are going to have the same problem. It's going to be difficult to force people to use this. And so it might end up being a settlement network at an institutional level. But I think that's going to be bad. I think it's going to be another costly, permissioned, clunky system that makes legacy payments and banking worse. So to be frank, barring something very aggressive happening for on a regulatory front, I think that what we're more likely to get is Tether. I think that Tether is probably going to be the cryptocurrency slash digital dollar that eats up legacy finance and Retail saving or international payments throughout the world outside the US. That's my view.
0: Oh, great. That's so, so great. You don't actually mean actual Tether, but you
1: mean something like Tether? I mean, it could be Tether because this has all happened before. The Euro dollar system started growing up in the 1950s because the US debanked the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had millions of dollars at accounts with U.S. banks in New York. And then as the U.S. got crazier and crazier with their sort of McCarthyist, Red Scare, communist witches or casting spells on us kind of insanity, the Soviet Union thought, gosh, they're going to seize our bank accounts. This is bad. We need to move our because I mean, every government has bank accounts. They do a lot of transactions. They have to fund international purchases and consulates and embassies overseas. So they need plugins to local banking systems. So they end. Up moving their deposits to London. And that was part of the creation of the offshore Euro dollar system that we have today. And this is a system that the US can kind of shake the tree by banning the Russian central bank from using Swift and seizing their dollar deposits in the jurisdictions of friendly central banks. But they're just shaking the tree. They can't uproot it because the Euro dollar system grew up outside the US. And there are these dollar denominated bank accounts in every country in the world that the Federal Reserve can't control, and the Treasury has difficulty regulating. I think that we're going to continue to have kind of a decentralized international euro dollar system. But as the US tries to, and other go- governments try to lock down legacy banking and control business and personal financial activity more, I think it incentivizes using something with less controls. And right now, that's Tether. And you can see in terms of inflows, there's something like $80 billion of Tether outstanding right now. There's obviously massive demand for a permissionless international dollar stablecoin.
0: No doubt about that. I think that is like even as a Bitcoiner, I cannot deny that there seems to be a voracious market appetite for stable coins like that. The only thing that seems more dystopian than eight old people in a dark room deciding the price of money with one spokesperson coming out and announcing it to the world is a for profit corporation also issuing money. I just I don't know, man, I just. I don't want my money to be owned by a company. You know, like the money I have in my account, I don't want that owned by a company. I just don't like that sensation. I don't like that idea. I don't like the feeling. And as a Bitcoiner, it's just sort of like the opposite of
1: my morals when it comes to storing my wealth long term. I think I agree with you. I would just like to point out that what you're describing is the status quo. If you have dollars in a bank account... Those dollars were created (laughs) by that bank. When you deposited money into that bank, They credited you for the deposit. And that credit that you think of as your bank account, that we think is money, it's a liability of the bank and a credit of you, but it exists only in the SQL database or Excel spreadsheet of the bank. The physical dollars or the digital dollars that you deposited, they were sent on to loans or they were just paid out. They don't exist in the bank anymore. So we already have kind of corporate money, corporate credit based money. That's the status quo. And What Tether is doing is interesting because Tether is just actually a big bank with a theoretically conservative investment profile. That's what they are. They're just unregulated.
0: I don't like that about the current system. And when I explain that's how the current system works to people like family or friends that are actually interested in listening, they don't believe me. But it doesn't necessarily mean I'm comfortable with yet giving another company even more centralized control and power absolutely at least in the US the banking system is somewhat distributed like i i am at a uh, a union what do they call them credit, a credit union. union i'm at a credit union right so i feel like okay i've kind of, i'm participating in a slightly more distributed system
1: if we roll back to Terra Luna. Remember how there was this idea of algorithmic stablecoins, and it was this terrible idea. It didn't work. And the reason that DeFi wanted algorithmic stablecoins was they discovered, and we've seen this intensify with MakerDAO buying billions of dollars of U.S. treasuries, that actually you can't really decentralize a centralized U.S. dollar. Even though the euro dollar system is relatively decentralized, holding dollars themselves is not really possible at scale in the legacy banking system. You can't have a bank account with a billion dollars in it. Your bank is actually going to have a problem with that because a billion dollar bank account of demand deposits is a massive liability on the bank's balance sheet because you could withdraw it tomorrow. And they can't really hedge against that. Like they need to invest that money to create yield, to fund their operations and pay their shareholders. But they can't because it's just in a bank account. So you can't actually hold a billion dollars in a bank account. You need to invest it into treasuries or something else. And so like issuing stable coins is really tricky because the issue is how much liquid dollars do you need in bank? accounts to fund withdrawals or redemptions of our stablecoin? And how much can we safely put in a yield earning portfolio? But if you put too much in the portfolio, you end up like insolvent temporarily or permanently like Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic. So it's really tricky. And we actually see some of this difficulty in Circle. So Circle is the regulated US dollar stablecoin. Circle thought that they could beat out Tether by being more compliant. And it turns out that actually that's not working out for Circle because the U.S. is a bit hostile, I think, to this kind of business model right now, a little schizophrenic. And Circle actually sold off a large amount of their U.S. Treasury bonds that served as their reserves against their outstanding stablecoins in circulation, and they move that money into repo swaps and money market funds, which is very reasonable. I mean, it's not a crazy thing to do. But it's interesting because it kind of demonstrates that the fundamental assumption of the financial system since 1972 is that U.S. government debt is a good substitute for gold in a vault. Like the U.S. government debt actually has no counterparty risk because the U.S. government will always print dollars to pay off their debt. But what we discovered in the debt showdown is that actually when the U.S. government is really politically dysfunctional, you have major politicians, including Donald Trump, who is frankly, in terms of polling, kind of at the front for being the next president right now, saying, hey, why don't we default on this thing? You know, that, w- that would be great. We could really own the uh, Democrats if we defaulted on it. No view on either side involved here, but that is politically unstable. That is really unstable. So the fundamental assumptions of like legacy finance and banking, are clearly wrong. The U.S. dollar and U.S. Treasury securities are not stable. They're relatively volatile. There's a lot of political volatility that affects the safety or the perceived safety of those assets. And so that's a big issue for not just stablecoin issuers, but for legacy finance as a whole. Yeah, it does
0: seem like a lot of the talk about the stability and the full faith and all of that of the U.S. government sort of seems quaint and antiquated in the uh, backdrop of these stupid political debt ceiling debates and this ginormous GDP to debt ratio, the interest payments that alone are just absolutely ballooning out of control, and of course the constant unmitigated military industrial complex spending. It sort of makes like this idea that these are a safe bet because, well, son, they're backed by the U.S. government. And that's such a silly idea right now. It seems so, um, it seems like the way my grandpa's generation saw the world.
1: Because it's a worldview that made sense in a very different environment. This leads into something that Tether has done, because I don't want to sound like I'm saying, hey, you know, everyone should go get Tether. I am very uncomfortable with a lot of details around Tether. I think that there's this view expressed in crypto Twitter that Tether is this really well-run company and everyone who's doubted Tether just looks like an idiot today. And I guess I am not convinced because Tether is very secretive about their operations. And so I don't think we know if they're a well-run company. That's just something to be concerned about, in my view.
0: Oh, I think we've seen some warning signs, right? Like, some of these things just take a very, very long time to play out. It's not necessarily that the bitcoiners that are raising concerns around Tether are wrong, it's that the timing might be, right? These things just take longer than we expect. I think it's red flag territory, but like I said earlier, I also recognize there's a very large market for this. And so that's going to keep them afloat for a while as well, just right there, the market demand until something better comes along. Maybe it's a US government or Federal Reserve CBDC that is essentially like a stable coin, and maybe that finally causes Tether's collapse. But as long as there's strong market demand, even in a bear market, I think they're going to be sticking around. They just have to keep shuffling the cards and, you know, moving the cups around.
1: There was some news recently that I meant to bring up, kept on forgetting. And the way this news broke kind of speaks to some of the things I think are weird about Tether and concerning. So Paolo Ardino is the CTO of Tether. And for a CTO, he does a lot of like public facing stuff, you know, so that's kind of like. Okay, what? But um, his Twitter account is this image of like a little pear or something with like a Joker face on it. You know, I, I don't understand like the reference. But he has this Twitter blog post. I guess he paid for a check mark so he can post text dumps on Twitter that includes. There's a meme. You know, there's like a gladiator meme there, but his face is on the gladiator. Essentially, they're reinvesting their profits into Bitcoin, and this is literally what Tether truthers have been worried about for a long time that a large portion of Tether's reserves are Bitcoin. And so if Tether uses Bitcoin as reserves to issue Tethers and then Tethers are used to buy Bitcoin, it creates this like circularity, like circular pump mechanism. And this has been an argument that's been raised multiple times over the past couple of years. And I don't think that that's definitely correct because if Tether is wildly profitable, it doesn't like hurt their portfolio to invest profits into Bitcoin. I mean, they can speculate as long as they're speculating out of profits and they have sufficient liquidity in their portfolio. The issue is, you're hearing about this in a blog post, okay? And then there's like a meme down in the replies and they're comparing, you know, the Virgin USDC to the Chad Tether. USDC compliant, HQ in the US gets probed by the SEC. The Chad Tether has like 10 employees, manages a $70 billion market cap, 700 million in profit in one quarter. But I mean, the thing is, Tether says they have a $700 million profit. They don't have audited financials, so who knows? So it's just interesting that legacy finance and regulation and everything is kind of so dysfunctional that the biggest stablecoin in the world is Tether. No one knows where their office is. They interact with the world via Twitter. They claim to, I mean, I think you can see on blockchains that they do have like $70 billion of Tether moving around, but like no one knows anything about this company. I mean, this is, this is pretty crazy.
0: Yeah. And I don't get comfort from bragging that like 10 people are managing $70 billion of funds.
1: That sounds like some FTX right shenanigans,
0: you know? <laughs> Like, you're, like, bragging about that? Really? Oh, I mean, it's it's a <laughs>
1: meme. You know, someone's just throwing that in there. But you think there's got to be okay. more than oh, 10. But yeah, yeah.
0: But it does kind of in- encapsulate how we feel. It's like, it feels like it's this tiny, tiny group of people that are just... I don't know, constantly shuffling all of the seats on the Titanic to try to keep things going. I don't know. That's what it feels like, at least from afar. But then yet you see all these transactions happening. You, there does seem to be quite a bit of volume in Tether. I have to be honest with you, if I'm gonna, just full disclosure here, I was hoping this bear market would cause Tether to collapse because I felt like if we went into the next bull cycle with Tether still around, then guess what's going to cause the next crash is oh, Tether. It's right? going to be like,
1: Tether one day Yeah, to so get, yeah. so get
0: it out of the way. Exactly. And that's not happening. I guess I was one of those tether deniers. I guess call me out, but I thought with, with the bear market, with everything collapsing like it has, with all of these uh, like three-hour capital-type shenanigans going on, I thought, I thought tether would finally pop, and we'd clear it out. And, you know, one more thing that we just sort of worked our way through in the bear market. Instead, rebuilding better than ever and uh, apparently surviving, which is not what I expected and gives me concern because I still have issues with all the fundamentals here, some of the same problems you have issues with, And it feels like they're only going to get more and more stressed when the market becomes more and more dynamic. And I'm looking at the halvening in 2024, and I'm thinking maybe a recession starts to wrap up mid 2024. I'm thinking Tether's going to have a whole new level of stress applied to it, and they could really screw the pooch on a good thing here.
1: Yeah, I mean, when they claim to have 700 million in profits in one quarter, I look at that and I think, I wonder if that's a sign of having more risk in your portfolio than you should. But I don't know. It's just wild speculation at this point. Are you? Is that a recent quarterly result? Yeah, it was this uh, last quarter. What risk asset could you possibly speculate in the last quarter that would have resulted in that? I mean, how are they making that? I mean, maybe they just put a lot of money into money market funds and money market rates went up to 6% on $80 billion. At the same yeah, time, yeah. there's a lot of custody risk there if you're an unregulated international shadow bank. So I don't know. I honestly don't have a problem with Tether I met Paolo Ardino at the Adopting Bitcoin Conference. I mean, he's cool. He's like, he'll talk about all the technical stuff with you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a cool guy. You know, what's given me
0: the most faith in Tether in a long time. And I this is just because I so far have really respected what Strike has done. But Strike just launched in 68 countries because they relocated their primary office into El Salvador. And then with the regulations and licensing there, they can launch in a bunch of countries. And they're giving users a new option to hodl in dollars, essentially. So you can receive Bitcoin and then you can keep a balance in the app in dollars or something. I don't know. This isn't something I've used. Is it in Tether? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so Strike, which has been one of the shining beacons of Bitcoin-only companies, has been taking some heat in the Bitcoin community in the last couple of weeks since Bitcoin 2023. Uh, About Integrating Tether support on the back end. The user never interacts with it. It's all swapped by their services and stuff. They just see dollars in the app, the
1: user. But I think it's actually Tether on the back end. Look, if you've got dollars in there, there is risk, OK, because there's no way to to have a non-custodial dollar unless you have cash in your hand, because the Tether is a representation of a dollar that Tether owns somewhere. Supposedly. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And hopefully it's not like some sort of derivative of Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. But I guess Strike did the due diligence, I would hope, to determine that it's at least meeting their requirements, I hope.
1: So tell me about this article on Bitcoin mining and grid usage.
0: Well, now, isn't this interesting? This is what's considered a high resolution modeling and analysis. And Three different uh, colleges and also the Electric Reliability Council of Texas worked together on a study to analyze and model the Bitcoin mining industry's impact on the electrical grid in Texas, and to determine if it contributed to stability or decreased stability, and also to determine if it increased consumer prices or decreased consumer prices. And they also took a look at the carbon emissions uh, from like, the the mining facilities that use really, really cheap energy and the mining facilities that use, I guess, more expensive energy, and, and look at the carbon offset difference there And we will put a link to the entire report, including the PDF, but the highlights are exactly what we expected that a on-demand load is actually really, really great for the grid and areas that used cheaper energy actually produced lesser carbon emissions, which would seem to indicate those areas were using renewables and that the Bitcoin mining facilities seem to kind of incentivize get this actual investment in renewables, because they could then sell those to the Bitcoin miners at great rates. They also showed how the Bitcoin mining facilities provided more stability and reduced overall cost for consumers, which is the opposite of the narrative that's been in the media recently. And again, this is three different colleges and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas and the Department of Elect- Electrical and Computing Engineering of Texas at a University working together to do this high-resolution modeling and analysis. And the data seems to be exactly kind of what we suspect did.
1: Yeah, it's great to have sort of more serious research about Bitcoin mining's impact on the grid, because I think our critique of some of the FUD that was being thrown around in the Texas anti-mining bill that was defeated was that somehow Bitcoin mining was raising prices for consumers. And then I think there was that Biden administration proposal to leverage a 30% tax on Bitcoin mining. And that proposal was based on this assumption that any new Bitcoin mining would be using one hundred fossil fuels, which is just completely wrong. Fossil fuels are too expensive to use for Bitcoin mining in the United States. And before you found this article, I recall reading a bit of investigative journalism, I think maybe from Coindesk, where they went to that um, natural gas plant in upstate New York that was you know, basically used as the test case for why New York needs to put a freeze on Bitcoin mining. And it turned out that all of the criticism of that facility was wrong. There was this allegation that this natural gas burning plant had somehow heated the lake It was next to and like raised the temperature of the lake and it was killing all the fish. And that was just not true. And the local community actually didn't seem to have a problem with that mining facility. In fact, it did create some jobs and economic activity in the local community. And they were happy about that. The people who were complaining were rich New Yorkers who had vacation houses near there. It just seems like the mining criticism is pretty weak and pretty motivated.
0: I was trying to remember the name of a podcast that I was just listening to, a new podcast. I think it was like Pleb Miners pretty well done podcast. And they had an interview with one of the original miners from Missoula, Montana, where they kind of ran them out of town claiming that the Bitcoin mining operation made so much noise that it was harming local wildlife. Do you remember that story? No, I don't.
1: That sounds very spotted owl to me.
0: Yes, it was. Yeah. Pleb Miner Monthly episode I think it was 6 Pleb Miner Monthly episode 6 they do an interview with a with the individual from there and they talk about this is really early days in the bitcoin mining about how the hysterics just kind of chased them out of town you know it is what it is they've moved on I don't know like the whole thing is so funny because like if you wanted to have a big on demand load come into your area that's such a gift to the local power grid We don't really appreciate it as consumers until we understand a little tiny bit about how that market works. But, you know, if Apple comes in to Austin or Apple comes in to somewhere down there, they can't just shut down iCloud. Netflix can't just shut down streaming. AWS can't just shut down all your EC2 instances. But a Bitcoin mining operation can actually shut down their Bitcoin miners, and the Bitcoin network just doesn't care. Services go completely uninterrupted. The security is totally unaffected. It's completely unlike any other data center consumer, and it's a nice, clean, low-carbon power. The only emissions are whatever generates the power. And because Bitcoin seems to, and this study seems to also back it up, incentivize renewables, it's a win-win. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my podcast network. Yes, it's a whole suite of shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We just posted self hosted, the one with 45 drives. These are the folks that are known for making really high end enterprise storage at just ridiculously reasonable, just barely above cost prices. And now, 45 drives is turning their attention on the home lab market. You know that price point like between like $900 and $2000 somewhere in that range, they want to build a really awesome vm capable self-hosting capable system and we chatted with a couple of the individuals from 45 drives in episode 98 of self-hosted you can find that over at jupiterbroadcasting.com as well as a bunch of great shows
1: well i have not listened to that yet but why can't you just use a dell t620 or something like that with a bunch of drive bays yeah. in front
0: i mean you sure could right or or go to like unix surplus by the way if you haven't been to unix or whatever it is Yeah, that's a great way to go. But they're looking for somebody that wasn't served by the QNAP or the Synologies and doesn't necessarily want a rack. You know, uh, But you okay. want something in between with lots of drives and great capabilities to run applications and containers and VMs. And right. I would assume take advantage of some fancy Linux file system.
1: You want a better kind of NAS in a box with VM capability, but you don't actually yeah. want to run your own hypervisor.
0: Yeah. Or another way to look at it is like you want a home lab, but you don't have time to DIY the entire hardware aspect of it.
1: I honestly had that conversation with someone at work this week. I think they might be onto something. Customers exist for this.
0: Or like small businesses, right? I used to do IT consulting for years and years, and 10, 15-person offices of dentists and doctor's offices was like my sweet spot. Neurology, gynecology, and dentists. Where I got a lot of my work, and a little server that was bigger than a Synology, but smaller than, say, a big rack mount would have been perfect for them.
1: Sounds like a great listen. Now, before we get into Bitcoin OpTech, are you ready for some more drawbacks of lightning? Woo. Actually, I
0: am. I feel like I need to kind of come down to earth on lightning because I am I got pretty hyped up in the last few months, especially when the fees got high in the last few weeks. But I also, at the same time, feel like it's, um, you know, a Chia Pet? Like, I feel like I have to constantly water my Chia Pet, <laughs> which is my lightning node. And if I don't, like, I, I kill everything within a few days.
1: Yeah, I feel like there is... A view, and I think it's a view that is sort of held by, you know, serious technical Bitcoiners, that lightning is really cool, but it's a stopgap measure to other more robust scaling technologies. So one, obviously Lightning lets you do instantaneous final settlement with an asterisk in most situations. So what's the scaling limit to Lightning? Well, the answer is it's opening Lightning channels. Opening Lightning channels requires on-chain transactions. So if you had a million people who wanted to open Lightning channels, then you would have full blocks for, I think, a month, maybe. Uh, I'd have to do the math. but
0: Yeah, it does sound right. And I will also note the human incentives. When the fees were high, I heard from nobody. I'm not calling you guys out, but I heard from no one in the audience about opening channels to our nodes. And now that the fees have, are down again, I got two DMs in the last day about, hey, would you like me to open a channel now that the fees are low?
1: And that is using Lightning correctly. Like You're doing it right. You open the channel when the fees are low, and then you reap the benefit when the fees are high. But there's also another issue with high fees. And that's because the way that lightning creates security is that when we make a lightning payment, our nodes update our channel state and pre-sign new withdrawal transactions. And the model or the structure that's used to create a pre-signed withdrawal transaction is called an HTLC, hash time lock contract. Well, HTLCs currently, they have a fee associated with them, an on-chain fee. And so when your on-chain fees shoot up really high, actually you can't make a safe lightning payment where the lightning payment is smaller than the cost of sort of settling that transaction. So this article from BitMEX makes the point that if it costs 30,000 sats to make an on-chain transaction, then in in a way you can't economically trustlessly settle that transaction on-chain unless the transaction is worth more than 30,000 sats. I mean, it kind of intuitively makes sense. Like if the cost cost to actually settle a lightning transaction is higher than the transaction then economically if someone tried to steal that you should let them right
0: well yes but when does that actually get settled is it settled at the time of the channel closure it would be settled at the time of the channel closure that just seems to me to indicate don't have small channels you know if you have more than more than enough channel capacity, then you don't have to close when the fees are high. Absolutely. But if you have small channels, then you have to close or rebalance all the time.
1: Right. But it also means that, okay, maybe Lightning doesn't exactly solve the micropayment problem. Maybe it only solves the medium-sized payment problem. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. That's fair. Yeah.
1: I think it's a good read. It's a big topic to get into. It gets really deep, really fast. And our second Bitcoin education topic, Bitcoin Optech, kind of gets into another subtlety around Lightning. Which is Barack's new protocol ARC. I'm hoping to do an interview with Barack. I think we'd have a really interesting conversation, but I think this Bitcoin Optex summary is quite a good jumping off point. And it makes the observation that ARC is a join pool style protocol. Essentially when you send a Bitcoin transaction into the ARC protocol, you you know, you make this special I think it's a two of two multi-sig. So it's kind of like a lightning channel transaction. You make this transaction and now the ARC service provider and you both own this UTXO. And so, when I said last week how Arc seems really interesting because theoretically you could send a UTXO into Arc, do some transactions and then peg out of Arc and receive a different UTXO. I believe that is correct. And that's really interesting. Like UTXO swapping, that's kind of like perfect privacy in many ways. So that's very interesting. But Arc also requires on-chain transactions, and it actually requires more on-chain transactions than Lightning because the Arc service provider needs to make on-chain transactions to sort of update the state of all the ARC VTXOs so that everyone who has an ARC VTXO can trustlessly peg out of the system. So they kind of need to have, you know, like an update to the state of the ARC pool of VTXOs, and they have to anchor that state on the blockchain so that you can refer to it and get the correct amount of Bitcoin out when you trustlessly peg out.
0: So this is an area where it seems like the Bitcoin community could be considering Nostr for relay in this kind of information
1: well i think that Arc would not exist if Nostr didn't exist because, you know, it plays really nicely with Nostr. It plays really nicely with Lightning. This is not a silver bullet though. I mean, this is essentially, I think what Arc optimizes for is if you want to get started with layer 2 Bitcoin, you can just open up an Arc wallet and I can send you some Arc VTXOs and you can trustlessly peg out and get your Bitcoin and there's no custodial trust there. It's like easy, fast onboarding, low fees, privacy and no custodian. So that all sounds really good, but there is an on-chain footprint. And that means that the scaling ability of this is limited because the ARC service provider needs to kind of update the state of the ARC pool and the people who are holding these VTXOs in Bitcoin blocks. And I'm not sure if they need to be in every block or every other block. I'm not sure, but it's a lot of on chain transactions, frankly. If there are a bunch of ARC service providers. If there are only two or three, it's you know, it's not that much. But if there are a lot, that could be a problem. You wouldn't want just two or three, really, right? I mean, that's pretty centralized at that point. But it's trustless. So maybe if you just had one and they did it really well, it would be fine because they can't steal your funds.
0: Mm-hmm. I am just as an aside, really interested to see where Noster can be used as kind of a, maybe an orchestration layer. You know, imagine a BISC payment situation type thing, but maybe it's built into your wallet. You know, you and I both have Sparrow and maybe Nostr can be used for some kind of discovery or or something like that to do some of the communication. There are apps out there right now that use Matrix to communicate between the apps to sync and uh, Bitcoin wallet apps. And again, I wonder if maybe Nostr could be used there, too. It feels like we're not there yet, but there is going to be a nice kind of overlay of Capabilities
1: and features there. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're seeing with Arc is how these new ideas, these new services and features that build on previous building blocks, they unlock new like another layer of ideas on top of that. It feels very innovative or something, very rich in terms of where this is going, I think.
0: It sounds cliché, but there's like a lot of runway here. There's a lot of a lot of potential future innovation that can still happen.
1: Also, there is a really interesting article in Bitcoin Optech about block space and the upper and lower bounds of the size of transactions. This is kind of nerdy, but it basically demonstrates how if you have a native SegWit two of three multi-sig, your input size is going to be you know 70% larger than a, a native SegWit single-sig. And so you can kind of compare the size of different transactions using different address schema. And you really see it with Taproot. Taproot, because you can add keys together, the size of a taproot signature is always the same for single SIG or multi-SIG. Once there's great tooling around this and wallets support it, it means that you can have multi-SIG protection and you won't be paying more money for it. Whereas currently with a multi-SIG, your input and output sizes are going to be a bit bigger than uh, single SIG transactions because there are more signatures, obviously. Uh, maybe this is an asinine point, but it's uh, kind of interesting to uh, look at the data and uh, think about that
0: there is no such thing as an asinine point uh thank you everybody who does reach out to the show remember you can get in touch at bitcoin dad pod at protonmail.com or i suppose bitcoin dad pod on twitter maybe Probably your better bet would be joining our Matrix channel. We have all that information linked in the show notes. We have a Bitcoin discussion and a Bitcoin questions. And we also include alts in there. And don't forget, this is a value for value podcast, meaning that your contributions directly keep the show going. And one of the ways to do that is through some boosts. And Anonymous came in with our first boost, 10,001 sats across two boosts, actually. So they're our baller because it's over 20,000. They say, great show, longtime listener. If you were to receive a windfall of $10,000 and you wanted to invest it all in Bitcoin, how would you do it in a non-KYC fashion? And then they sent it another 10,001 sat boost to say, I have used BISC, but it's only a few hundred dollars at a time.
1: Well, I was going to say, I think BISC is the probably the most robust non-KYC fashion to buy Bitcoin in the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., you could try Hoddle Hoddle, They are kind of similar to BISC, but a easier... UI, because it's slightly more centralized, or a lot more centralized, frankly. What about sizes on RoboSats? Do you think you could do something with RoboSats?
0: I mean, you're still going to be in the few hundred dollars as an aside, I think maybe Anonymous is looking at this at the wrong way. The largest mistake you could make right now would be to spend $10,000 on Bitcoin. <laughs> Just I would not spend $10,000 all at once on Bitcoin right now. I would instead buy in $100 batches over the next six months. I think a recession is likely. DCAN. Yeah. And I think the price is going to come down. So I would average out that purchase couple hundred bucks every week until uh, I had gone through the money, because you're very, very, very likely to get some great sat prices coming up through the summer and into fall. And I would just kick myself if I bought those sats at 27000 when I could be potentially buying them at sixteen. And then again, long term, you're looking at this thing, you're hoping it's going to go way up above that, so maybe it doesn't matter. But I would DCA. It is more tedious to do that KYC-free, um, know your customer-free. Uh, it is more tedious, but if you've got BISC set up, you're willing to do RoboSats, uh, just every Friday, every Monday, whatever it is, pick a day of the week and uh, go buy a couple hundred dollars worth of sats.
1: And the thing about DCA is that if if the price falls and you're DCAing, you get sort of a lower average cost, and that's nice. And if the price rises and you're DCAing, you get a slightly higher average cost. But the thing is, you're getting an average cost. So it kind of protects you going up and going down. Maybe a safer way to go.
0: I think it might be the best way to buy into Bitcoin. And a lot of times it's also... Layering out is how how they call it. You can layer out as well. You can essentially reverse DCA and sell a little bit now. And then as the market goes down, you sell a little bit more. And it's not ideal. I would never want to sell those sats. But the idea is when the price is moving around and the market is discovering what the actual asset value is... It's kind of silly to just put all of your money in at one price point because it's constantly going up and down.
1: And also, if you're not used to having a bunch of Bitcoin, suddenly going from zero Bitcoin <laughs> to tens of thousands of dollars could be kind of stressful. So, you know, I kind of like the slow entry yes. because then you can try different wallets, see if you want to do a multi-sig. You know, you can kind of learn that as your Bitcoin holding increases and and, and you don't get into a situation where you're like suddenly, whoa. I have way too much Bitcoin on this phone wallet. What the hell do I do? And you're super stressed out.
0: Honestly, when you're trying to go the KYC route, sometimes it's a bit of a hop and jump between different apps and swaps. Like, say you go RoboSats. All right, well... Ideally, you move those off of RoboSats using Lightning for privacy, and then you're going to at some point need to swap those things onto chain so that way you can put them in a cold wallet. And you're going to need to figure that workflow out. Each one of us does, depending on our setup and depending on the apps we're comfortable using with. And if you're starting with a few hundred sats, not a big deal. If you're starting with a few thousand dollars worth of sats, that's a stressful thing to figure out. And that workflow, you want that to be smooth, easy, and as cheap as possible. And the best way to figure that workflow out is just by experimenting.
1: Celesius boosts in with 1,108 sats. Longtime listener, first-time booster. Love the podcast. Greetings from Poland. Pew, pew. pew, pew. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the first time, Boost. I taught myself how to say hello in Polish, but it was quite difficult. It's actually a very hard language, uh, so I forgot. Sorry, Silesius. <laughs> Maybe if Celesius keeps boosting in, you'll refresh. <laughs> if you boost in again, I'll d- try Polish on you. you. But you might not want that. Now he's never going to boost in. Oh,
0: hold on, hold on. We have a special boost from Crypto Kyle. It's been a minute. It's good to see Crypto Kyle coming into the pod uh, for two thousand sats. You know what? For Crypto Kyle, I got this for you too. You ready? Okay. I brought this with me to the woods just for Kyle. <laughs> Just, just in case Kyle boosted in. That's for you, Kyle. <laughs> 2,000 sats. ERC-20 is the conman wonderland of the 20s.
1: It did make scamming on a blockchain very approachable. Yeah. Mere Mortals podcast boosts in 1,111 sats, a row of sticks. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. We even managed to squeeze in a fair bit of Bitcoin talk in there. Splits and Satoshis are the future. Here, here. I listened to that entire interview. I was actually thinking about it. That's why I hadn't sent a, a boost or a comment in yet, but it was a really great interview. I mean, I think that that is honestly a must listen for podcasters because you have so much experience as a podcaster and just hearing your thoughts after over a decade of podcasting, two decades of podcasting, maybe. It's just a must-have for (laughs) someone who's going to podcast, even casually. you can learn a lot just from that interview.
0: Yeah. Save yourself some trouble and some time. And honestly, great podcast, Miramortles podcast. I've been having longer uh, morning commutes. And so when the Miramortles podcast comes out, put that on. Listen. Scott comes in with two, three, four, five sats. Here's a bill idea. Create a clear set of standards that determines whether a given digital asset is decentralized. The Howey test would be a good one to write in, with clarity given on how ICOs and pre-mines qualify as an asset as a security. Then, require the SEC to accept the registration of digital asset securities. Ah, the others would then be considered commodities.
1: Well, Scott, I think that's a reasonable proposal. At the same time, I don't think the issue with the lack of good legislation in the U.S. is a lack of reasonable proposals. I think the issue is that there are political factions that can't work together and they they just have divergent views of reality and are not interested in meeting in the middle. So I think your bill could be very workable. At the same time, I don't think it will get passed in the next five years.
0: Also, some sort of law (laughs) or bill that requires the SEC to actually have these meetings and organize uh, with these securities. Boy, if that doesn't really hit me in the feels, that's totally something we need. But I think the SEC instead would prefer to sort of establish their domain via violence. And uh, that's what we're seeing right now. And I don't know if there's any Congress critter that wants to risk
1: reining them in. Orange Mart boosts in 5,000 sats. Door hinge won't start. Come on down to the Orange Mart. We've got everything you need to survive and thrive in Orange. Find out more at orangem.art. What is this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I got to go to, or- well, apparently I got to go to orangem.art, obviously. Orange I need everything Mart to su- with
1: a dot between the M and the art. <laughs> everything you need
0: to thrive. I clearly am going there right now as we record the pod. Oh, yeah. Welcome to Orange, the start of something great. I like it. Looks like it's a, it's a blog. I, th- I was ready to buy some swag, so I'm moving on, Jammer, Wait, but se- thank you.
1: Setting up and modifying your own Rust server, a beginner's guide? Yes, yeah. please. Yeah. Yes, yeah. please.
0: All right, Orange Mart, you got him. Jammer comes in with 7,667 sats. Dad, Chris, this is the podcast that finally got me to start stacking sats.
1: It's also the podcast I look forward to the most every week. Keep them coming. Oh, thank you so much, Jammer Jammer Jade. that's awesome. Wow. Stack away. Oh, and I get this one. The Golden Dragon has returned with 13,000 sats. Ow! Moving away from Fountain as it's become unusable for me. wop wop. here are my sats for being away so long and doing satoshi's good work for helping Bitcoin adoption. Thank you so much, Golden Dragon.
0: (laughs) You know what's going to happen. Dragon's going to switch away from Fountain, and they're releasing an update tomorrow as we record, and it's going to solve these issues. You know that's what happens, Dragon.
1: When I see Golden Dragon, I always think of that Doctor Who villain, the Grand Serpent. So it kind of feels like we've got a, you know, mafia triad boss who's also a big Linux nerd boosting in. That's just, that's my reaction to the name. I
0: think that's accurate. I think
1: that's probably pretty accurate
0: nomadic odor boosts in with 5,555 cents. I've had the Nomadic Coder domain and handle for over 20 years, and you're the first person to pronounce it Nomadic Odor. Anyways, thanks for the advice <laughs> to send my sets from my Ledger wallet to my cold card wallet. Ben made a great how to video on BTC Sessions last week that got me going. Oh, yeah, check out the BTC Sessions channel. Now, listen, man, your spelling is Nomadic Odor. You know that's true. You're missing a C. So uh, I want you to live your best life, bro, and just <laughs> embrace the odor. <laughs> thank you everybody who boosted in some fun boost this week not huge in the amounts but great in the messages we always appreciate your support you can boost in with a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com try out one of these new apps fountain has actually been absolutely brilliant on ios they have a brand new android version coming out tomorrow Podverse is cross platform and Castomatic has been honed for the iOS experience. You can try out one of these new podcast apps and boost them directly, or keep your dang legacy podcast app, your 1.0 app, and then just use Albie. GetAlbie.com, you top it off, head over to the podcastindex.org, find the Bitcoin Dad Pod on there and boost in from the webpage, and keep your dang stinking app.
1: This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on June 2nd, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with
0: me, Chris, from the woods. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.